I invite you to open up your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. 2 Chronicles chapter 33. It's good to see everyone out tonight once again to worship our God and to praise Him and to learn more about Him as we study throughout His Word. And that's what we'll be doing for the next few moments, just trying to learn as much as we can as we go throughout uh, a few portions of, of His Word. In 2 Chronicles chapter 33. We'll be reading from that in just a moment. The word grace is probably one of the most famous throughout the Bible, throughout the religious world, especially when it comes to people. Grace is one of the biggest topics that we talk about, and it's one of the most highly debated, I'd say, probably among all kinds of, of quote-unquote religious people. And it's because I think God's grace could possibly be if it is not the most foundational element in the Bible. And so therefore it's very important. So important that from the very beginning of the story in Genesis chapter 6 in the story of, it's interesting, the flood. That's the first time you see that word grace. Uh, there are some translations that, that it, it's translated into favor. But it's, it's, it's the Hebrew word for grace. So from the very beginning in Genesis it's so important that it already plays a part in God's dealings with man. And, and one of the greatest misunderstandings of grace, I'm afraid, is how it plays a role in our lives even after being saved. And I think this story in 2 Chronicles chapter 33 kind of gives us a helpful illustration on even this, how it does play a role even after it has uh, been, been uh, the very thing that saves us. Um, and, and I think sometimes alongside that, we also struggle to find the just how strong of a presence grace has in our lives just, just to be saved. So first to understand God's grace, we need to see the weight of our sin in contrast. And this story, again, in 2 Chronicles 33 helps us to do that. And so I think it's, you know, again, a lot of times when you go to the Old Testament, people tend to think or say, grace in the Old Testament, much of the religious world would try to break the Bible up in this way. In the, Old Test in the New Testament, that's where we find grace. But in, in the Old Testament, it's really nothing like that. It's more laws and ordinances and maybe more just severity and judgment of God. And while I do think you find that in the Old Testament, I think you find a lot more grace in the Old Testament than anything else. Uh, and so I think you see that in this story of Second Chronicles chapter 33 with a king named Manasseh. And what's interesting about this man is that he's the son of Hezekiah. And we looked at Hezekiah last week. He's a very good king. He's one of the best that arise in the timeline of uh, Israel or Judah after David. Because he's someone who wants to do what God has asked him to do. And he's someone who clings to God, which is a beautiful description to be made about any person who is a servant of God. But then you come to his son, and it, it, unfortunately, it's not the same story. Because Manasseh turns out to be quite an evil king. So beginning in verse 1 of 2 Chronicles chapter 33, it says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. He also erected altars for the Baals and made Asherim and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord had said, My name shall be in Jerusalem forever. For he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And he practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. 
Then he put the carved image of the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and Solomon, his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, if only they will observe to do all that I have commanded them according to all the law, the statutes, and the ordinances given through Moses. Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. That is quite the description of the man's character. In verse 9, that he had done more than any other king before him. It's striking because it's not like when you get to this point, we've had a lot of really, every single one of them has been like Hezekiah. No, it's like they're competing to try and do a little bit more evil every single reign, every step of the way. And unfortunately, it's very rare that you have a king like Hezekiah. But Manasseh is going along with much of their history. He's going to take them further and further. And you see all of the things that he is engaging in. And, and what I want to start with is that this was a very great transgression because Manasseh misled Judah greatly. This, this is not a small thing. It's not a small sin that he has committed because not only is he doing it individually, but he is leading all of his people to do the very same things. And so how does he mislead Judah? Well, first of all, what we find in the first five verses there is that he is polluting God's ways with the world's. And you even see within those verses that it talks about how he had brought in the abominations of the nations. And this happens in a few different ways, but because he does this not just in one area or another, he does this in every single aspect. From the, the standard that they're using to the worship that they're giving, he even creates idols and brings them into the sanctuary, Bring, get, makes idols and brings them into the place where God's name was supposed to dwell forever. And so he's trying to mix these things in together. And, and when you look at this, uh, this story in 2 Chronicles 33, we can see this story and think that is way too far. That is a disturbing sight. Who in their right minds would do something like this? And that is the proper response. And again, this wasn't just an individual thing. It, 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 he, had, he had been kind of an example in doing these things. And so all Judah was surrounding him and trying to do the exact same things. Now, what I think this shows us is it's very disturbing when you see it in this story. In, in, I mean, very vividly. But what happens when we come over and start making the application and seeing that this is what happens when you bring worldliness in. When you try to start, you know, mixing things in. We're still going to keep some of God's commandments. We're not just getting rid of everything. We're not getting rid of the temple. We're not getting rid of the, the Ark of the Covenant. We're not getting rid of all of these things, but we're just going to start bringing things in. And from the very beginning, what we find is that it does so much damage just in terms of, of the example that people set. He was a leader, and so people would follow him. And I think because he was a king, we may not fully make the, the application we're supposed to that this is the effect that examples have on people. This is the effect that leaders have on people. And so when you think about what a leader is supposed to be, when it comes to an elder, he's got to be a good example. We've talked about that in, in uh, the last few months, that he is an example of what a Christian is supposed to be. That's someone who needs to really work on their example because they know people are looking at them. But we don't have any elders. So that, does that mean that there's no application for me? No. Are you a leader in some other aspect? Husbands? Are you supposed to be a man that manages your household? Are you supposed to be an example? Are you supposed to be leading in a righteous way? Leading that the people around you want to do righteous things with you? Want to follow after the Lord? Maybe that's not the case. Or, or maybe you are a parent of kids 
And what are you doing? You're trying to set a good example. And you want, when they look at you, to think, I want to be like that. Not following after Manasseh, but following after Hezekiah. And, and maybe it's just that you don't have that kind of, those kind of relationships. And so, again, we come to the wrong conclusion. That, well, there's nothing for me to learn here. But there is, because don't you have people that you are surrounded by when you go to work? Or maybe when you go to school, depending on who you are? There's always somebody watching. No matter who we are, we are an example to someone. And we need to make sure that we are not showing people that we are a, a people that's ready to compromise when it comes to God's word. But people who are boldly, firmly standing in this one standard. And just kind of talking a little bit more about the damage that this does when we bring the world into and, and try to mix the world's standards with God's standards. Because ultimately, just as we see with Manasseh, we will go just as far. Sometimes when you think about just the worship alone, look at verse 6. It says, He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, and he practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So many things that he had done, but specifically that first part, that he made his own children pass through the fire. He gave them up, just like the rest of the nations. In Jeremiah, there's an interesting passage in, uh, in Jeremiah where he, God will speak through the prophet and say, this, what you have done, what you're doing now, this never even came into my mind. I, how could God's people ever get to this point? And again, that's the thought that I think we're supposed to have. That's the question we're supposed to come away with. And when we see it so vividly in this story, you still have some Christians saying things or asking questions like, well, does it really matter if we add just this one thing into the worship? You want to know why that's important? Because they completely missed the point of this story. Or one of the points. That just because we're not literally putting our, our children into the fire, that we're not literally putting them into this kind of sacrifice like the abominations of the nations, that does not mean that we are not doing a very, spirit, uh, very egregious spiritual injustice and a very egregious spiritual uh, 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 sin against them. This is what happens when you let a little worldliness in. It never just stays going that far. It always is going to progress. Why? Because you have completely gotten rid of the very boundaries that God had set up in the first place. If I can push here, why can't I push over here? And if I've already pushed over here, why can't I push a little bit further? It, if not, why not? Because we've already broken the line. We've already gone past it. So who cares? Ultimately, And frankly, I think that's what a lot of liberal and institutional uh, churches have found is that they are starting to have people among their own ranks who are going way out of left field. And they're starting to have women preachers and they're starting to have all kinds of things that they would say, how did we ever get here? I, I know how. Because you already have abandoned that standard. By, maybe you haven't completely left everything. Maybe you don't look like the rest of the religious world. But you have let go of the only thing that we said, this is where we get our authority from. And so this is what happens when we let a little worldliness in. We will go just as far. And this is what happened with Israel time and time and time again. They are proof that this is what will always inevitably happen when we abandon God as our sole authority. And so we don't want to look like Manasseh here. We don't want to look like the rest of Judah in this moment, just as ugly and terrible as it is. We better just learn the lesson and stick to the one authority we have in front of us. And, and we'll talk about this a little bit more as we continue on. But as you look at, at verse 10 of, uh, of 2 Chronicles chapter 33, it says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. 
Now, we didn't read that earlier, but I think that this is too important not to mention because one of the ways that he misled Judah is that they, he did not listen to God. And by example, what did the rest of the people do? Not listen themselves. And it's not like God wasn't trying to speak to his people. He would send the prophets like Jeremiah. And he would try to get these people to hear very simple words. Not saying they weren't hard to hear, but very simple words. Just abandon these ways, repent, and come back to me. And it's, it's a terrible thing to hear over and over again throughout the prophets. It's so sorrowful because God is constantly saying, come back, let us reason together. But the people won't have it. They won't listen. And so once more, we need to learn the lesson from a story like this. You don't want to go this far. Just keep listening. And don't ever get to the point where I'm going to start blocking. I, I, I don't really like hearing on one topic or another. I need to block this out because it's just too, it's too hard to hear. It's too offensive. We can't get to that point. As soon as we do, well, that's the first step. And so he misleads Judah in all of these ways. And so the judgment was very terrible. Over in verse 11, it says, Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. And so it, it, it was, and I'm not going to get into the descriptions of this, but if you want to in your own free time, you want to give yourself nightmares tonight, go ahead and look this up and see how they would use these hooks and how they would take their captives uh, away from their homelands and how they would show in a very public way as a spectacle that we have beaten these people. It's, it's disturbing. It's disgusting. But it, I mean, this is the harsh judgment that comes. Why? It's not because, what, where is God? What is he doing? He's been there the whole time, but they would not listen. And so because they won't listen, the punishment is great. And so the, and, and as you see on the screen, when you think about how severe this punishment is, sometimes even after all the things that we see, and especially with skeptics, but even with some Christians, they, hear, they see this judgment and they think, this seems a little bit harsh. But we don't want to come away like that. What we want to come away with when we see this kind of judgment that God brings is this was deserved and it was just. And let's go a step further. It would have been completely just and it would have been absolutely deserving for Manasseh and everything that he'd done to leave him in that captivity and in fact to die there and to go through even worse while he was there because he had all of these chances. Remember verse 10. Keep highlight that in your mind because God did not leave people to, to, to you know just say, well, I'm just gonna leave them to their vices and I'm not gonna try to He was always trying to bring them back. And so it would have been absolutely just for him to leave them there. But this is where I think the story teaches us some very hopeful and beautiful lessons as we start thinking about God's grace. Continuing on in verse 12, after the judgment had come, it says, When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Now after this, he built the outer wall of the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, even, in, uh, even to the entrance of the fish gate. And he encircled the Ophel with it and made it very high. Then he put army commanders in all the fortified cities of Judah. He also removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, as well as all the altars which he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside the city. He set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thanks offerings on it. And he offered Judah, uh, or ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. 
Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed in the high places, although only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, even his prayer to his God, and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, behold, they are among the records of the kings of Israel. His prayer also, and how God was entreated by him, and all his sin is unfaithfulness, his unfaithfulness and the sites on which he built high places and erected the ashram and the carved images before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the records of the Hosei. So Manasseh slept with his fathers and they buried him in his own house and Amon his son became king in his place. Now what's interesting about Chronicles and, and First and Second Kings, um, they kind of supplement each other. They give us a little bit more information. I will say I don't think that this is a situation where, oh, God messed up over here. He didn't give this person enough information, so we need to come back over here and restate some things. Because this prayer, Manasseh's faithfulness at the end of his life, isn't written in First or Second Kings. You don't find it. I, what we have is, is God sending people, more prophets and more scribes, to, with a purpose to these stories. Because in First and Second Kings, I think there's a specific purpose that God wanted his people to understand. That this is where unfaithfulness leads. Uh, but then in, you, in First and Second Chronicles, as the people are returning back from captivity, I think what he's trying to really emphasize here is look what faithfulness does even after you've been put through the captivity. Wouldn't this story be perfect for the people who are returning with Ezra and Nehemiah? That they could say, even Hezekiah, even he could be saved by God's grace. Even he could be changed by God's grace. And don't we need that? Because for 70 years we've had to be in exile because we abandoned him. And so what are we supposed to learn from Manasseh? Uh, and, and one of the main things I would say is the powerful lessons of God's grace. First of all, God's grace, even after all the damage and harm done by Manasseh, God was willing to be moved. I think that's one of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible because Manasseh was a terrible person. He's a terrible king. The fact that God was even willing to hear his prayer, unbelievable, truly Go over to Judges chapter 10. Judges chapter 10 because here is, is a story where I think is, is very consistent with what we see with God all the way throughout the Bible. It's not just in the, uh, this, this time frame of uh, even after the divided kingdom, Judah alone. But in Judges chapter 10, we see a very similar kind of situation where the people, they just continually rebel against God and they, they go into apostasy, they fall away from the Lord and God sends oppressors. But look at what this story here. It says, Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines? Also when the Sidonians, the, Am the Amalekites, and the Moanites oppressed you, you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will no longer deliver you. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. And again, if God had done that, it would have been just. And it would have been deserved. And no one could try to say, how dare God? He had done everything he needed to do. But that's not where the story ends. In verse 15, the sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he could, he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. <laughs> wow. Even here maybe we struggle with seeing the full impact or the full emotion that we should feel there. 
one of the things that I like to do is look throughout the prophets and see with how many ways and how many times God tried to bring his people back and how many ways they tried to just spit in his face. And one of the, the best stories I can think of is Hosea. Not best in terms of very beautiful. It is beautiful in one way, but it's tragic. Because Hosea, that prophet, has to deal with an unfaithful wife, a harlot of a wife, and she goes out and has illegitimate children. And what does God do but say, this is, this is Israel with me. I have been bearing this. For not just one lifetime. I've bared it from the beginning. And all throughout that prophet, what does God show? That even though you have a, a, a harlot of a wife, even though you have someone who has made themselves disgusting and unsightly, what does Hosea have to do but go and buy her back? What's rightfully his. So that way they can be in a relationship again. One of the most beautiful lessons, one of the most beautiful stories we have through the Bible. And why? Because it's the consistent one. It is the story of the Bible. That his people, his creation, made after his own image, sin against him, leave him, make themselves enslaved. And what does God have to do? He's got to be the one to, to you know, pay. He's got to be the one to give the cost to bring us back into relationship with him. And, and I bring that up just to say... The reasoning is not because, you know, when God does this, it's not like the way we tend to do whenever someone gives us a call and they say, something's happened again, I need you to fix it. All right, what? I'm going to come, I'm going to fix this again. I can't believe I have to do this. God doesn't do that. God, as we see at least two times, he's moved. He could bear their misery no longer. I tell you what, that's love and that's grace. And that's the grace of God and it's something that we need to learn from because what we do when we're hurt we make it very hard for people to come back. When people even remotely show a little semblance of repentance and say, maybe they're going to try and say, I, 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 please forgive me, I can't believe I've done this. Even if they just barely approach us, we're like, Yo, you better take a good long while before you speak to me again. <laughs> or maybe they say, I'm sorry. We'll, we'll just have to see what more you can produce to really break through because you've, you've done a number on this time. You've really hurt me this time. I mean, that's what we do. Unfortunately, I've done that too many times with many different relationships. God doesn't do that. What he, in fact, it's usually the other way around. It's the one who has sinned against him, who is hardened and stubborn, and he's the one with open arms, not the one crossing them saying, no, you better, you better think twice before you come. He says, please come back. Let us reason together. That should be some of the most moving verses that we can read. Because it's the same thing that God does with us. This is the grace of God. He doesn't become so hardened that he won't hear us. He stays waiting for us to make the proclamation. And that is powerful. And we need to learn from that, try to emulate that ourselves. But also see from God's grace how that should transform us. Because not only does God's grace trump the damage done by our sin, but it trumps the evil that we've committed ourselves to. The evil that we have committed uh, back over in verse 12 of, of 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Remember what it says. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Even someone as wicked and warped as Manasseh can be saved. Now, what does that mean for you and me? That even in the midst of, the, of, of probably the greatest distress of his life, at the literal, literal brink of destruction, God is willing to relent of the calamity that was coming upon him that Manasseh had brought on himself. 
we must be willing, like Manasseh, to humiliate ourselves and change our hearts. Because what it takes is humility. What it takes is someone who says, I, I did wrong. I have no one to blame but myself. And I'm coming to you begging you that you would take me back. I'm coming to you begging you that you would, that you would bring me back into a relationship with you. That humility has not, at least the condition of that humility has not changed from, from the Old Testament. Don't think that because now we're under a, a new covenant under Jesus that all of that is gone. This wasn't Manasseh saying, well, you do this for me and then we'll talk. You do this for me and then we'll see how I feel about you. Manasseh had already made a proclamation, I have sinned against you. And just like what we see in Judges, I, I would think it's the same thing. Do what you think is good. But please deliver us. Please deliver me. Because I have sinned against you and I want to be right with you again. And God says, he's willing to save even that man. Now, if someone as evil and wicked and warped as Manasseh could be changed, could be transformed, what does that say for me? Over in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1 in verse 15. Paul writing about himself, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now, what Paul is showing is the same kind of character and attitude that Manasseh had when he was at his lowest. He understood where he was before God when he had committed all of these sins. And he understood that God could have left them there. But he also understood that he couldn't remain the sinner that he was before receiving that salvation from, from, from God. From Manasseh to Paul, they were both, they were both very uh, habitual at the time of their, uh, I, don't, I don't know what other words to use, uh, conversion. Manasseh you can, you can, I mean, he was a king from a very young age. And so you can imagine with all of the power and authority and wealth of a king, he would be able to do this every day, all day. I mean, you just see how far he went. Paul was, this was embedded into his mind from an early age. He was zealous in persecuting the church, as we kind of talked about this morning uh, in the Bible class. He was zealous in these things, and he lived in good conscience to these things. He was so okay with sinning against God. Now, all that being said, when they meet Jesus, when you meet God and you are asking him to save you from the calamity, from the disaster, from your sins, you've got to be willing to turn from those sins. We have to be willing to let those things go completely. And what God says is, I promise you, I can transform you. And so sometimes people think there's, there's no, it's too deep in my mind. It's too deep in my heart. Well, what God says is we can pluck that out, even if it's got deep roots. I mean, you've got to be willing to go this far, but you can rip it out and tear it out. Are you willing to? Paul, Manasseh, they were willing to, and look at the change it produces. If he could be saved at such a dire time, what does that mean for me? 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, it says that God is not slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient. Why? Because he wants everyone to be saved. He desires for everyone to be saved. He desires for no one to reach the judgment. And that includes Manasseh. 
And yet God gives all of this time so that we can make the right decision. So when you think about God's grace, why is God's grace so beautiful? Because it is literally at your disposal any time. Are you still breathing? The only time that it, that, you've, that it is off the table is because you have rejected it to the point where you have died in your sins. You have already made the proclamation, I will never serve you. But if we're still breathing, God still has open arms waiting, pleading with us to come to him. So why is God's grace so beautiful? Because it can change even the blackest of hearts. And it is there and ready and accessible for whoever, whenever they want to come. As long as they're willing to change. And, and that's the other thing that I, I think God's grace trumps. It trumps the evil circumstance that our sin has wrought. Even in such a terrible judgment and circumstance like this that was brought on Manasseh, God can use this for good. Not only, and he didn't have to deliver Manasseh from this. He could have stayed in the captivity, uh, in his own captivity, in chains, and, and still been saved. God gives more grace by bringing him back to his home, by bringing him back to reign as king and as a good king for, for his purposes. But, but ultimately, not only that, but isn't it interesting that God's grace is shown by the fact that he uses even the, this calamity. He uses this judgment, this point of suffering, to bring Manasseh to him. And I think that this should kind of shift the way we view God's grace and, and the consequences that come because of our own sin. Because should we not make the same point that though the suffering he went through was incredible, and though the suffering some of us may go through may be incredible, could it not be the best thing for us that we get to our lowest point, like the parable of, of the, uh, of the uh, older brother, the parable that really is supposed to strike at the heart of the Pharisees. What happens with the prodigal son? He gets to his lowest before he comes to his senses and says, I need to go back to my father. And God can use even these moments. It's never too late. And shouldn't we look at these moments like it is a blessing from God if it means that we get to him? I think that Manasseh would have looked at it this way. I think Paul looked at it this way. Not that they were happy that they not that they were happy that they committed sin, but they were happy that whatever persecution they received, it brought them into a relationship with God. It's the same with us. Should we not understand the very same things about God's grace? We absolutely should. And so God's grace is beautiful, it is triumphant, and it is transforming. But grace won't safeguard us from consequences. And this is where I think one of the main misunderstandings apply when it comes to God's grace. Sometimes people think that we can almost use God's grace as a, not, not even as a blank check, but almost like, well, this just erases everything I've done. To a degree, you have salvation, and those sins aren't held against your soul anymore, but that does not mean that the consequences that you've brought on yourself, especially physically, are just going to go away. And this is important to note. And, and, and as you look at uh, back over in 2 Chronicles 33, look at verse 17. Remember, after all of these wonderful things that Manasseh was doing, in the middle it says, Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed in the high places, although only to the Lord their God. So at, at the very least, kind of like with Solomon, at the very least they're using it to offer gifts and sacrifices to God. But it's a shame that these things are still up, that they haven't been torn down like Hezekiah had done. And I'm not sure why Manasseh didn't tear them down when Hezekiah's father had done it and been blessed by God for, for so doing. And this is one of the reasons that Manasseh went into captivity, because he built them back up. 
But one of the things we need to understand about grace and consequences is that though Manasseh ended his life beautifully in a relationship with God, there were some lingering issues that weren't dealt with. There were all kinds of things that he did good and well, and I think that he ends his life in a right place with God. But there's still a small detail, and I say that, you know, a small detail, because it turns out, I think, to be pretty big in the high places. Now, we may read through that and think, but that's such a small detail. And I'll just ask, do, do we really think that? Is it really that small of a detail? Turn over to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy 12, beginning in verse 2. And you know what? Well, actually, let's begin in verse 1. Here's the promise given. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess uh, as long as you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, you shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their ashram with fire, and you shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and obliterate their name from that place. Now, maybe these weren't the original altars. Hezekiah had already torn them down, but what had Manasseh done? He had built up altars in his rebellion and sin against God, but he had rebuilt them in not God's image, but in the image of the abominations of the nations as we began with, didn't he? So that's not a small detail. This is actually quite a big detail that God says before they even take the, the promised land that these things are going to lead you away from me. These things are going to serve as temptations. And so if they are going to serve as temptations, what does God say? You get rid of them immediately. And don't, don't participate in doing those things. Now, unfortunately, Israel struggles with this all throughout their history, as we kind of indicated as we talked about Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3. But the reason that I go through this is because we might look at this and say, it's, it's, it's really not that big of a deal. Are we so bold to think that we can stand unaffected against the temptations of the world when history has concluded we cannot? I think this is one of our main issues, particularly, particularly as Americans in the 21st century. We tend to look at the older generations or we look at others around us and, and, we, and we kind of just mock the, maybe their traditions. We kind of mock the way they approach certain things, approach certain topics, maybe even about grace. And we're just kind of like, why do they have to be like that? Why do they have to do this? Maybe there's a reason. Maybe it's because there was temptations coming in from the world at that time. And so maybe the reason that you heard so many lessons on grace... And there was even an article about this in the bulletin not too long ago. Maybe the reason that the last, couple, the last few decades there were so many lessons on grace and what the world is trying to do with God's grace because the world was trying to invade and, and really strategize against what the scriptures teach. Maybe that's why. And so I have a hard time looking at that kind of, those kind of motives saying that we need to preach what God's grace really is and we need to preach against what the religious world is trying to do. I have a hard time looking at those preachers and those individuals and say, they're, they're just you know, old fogey. They're just sticks in the mud. No, they're doing it for a very good purpose. And so it's not a small detail. These are, these are temptations that we need to be preaching against so that way we don't fall just like the past generations have, just like the Israelites did, and just like Christians throughout time have. We want to learn from our past, from our spiritual heritage, and we want to make the right decisions. And so not going far enough, leaving something undone can be devastating regardless of how small it is. It can be absolutely destructive, not just on me, but for those around me. 
because it leaves room for future compromise. And what I mean by that when I say future compromise, I mean it leaves room for future sin. And we're trying to get rid of those things. And, and think about it like this. Look at the next few verses in verse 21. Look at the temptation this leaves for not just anybody, but Manasseh's own son. In 2 Chronicles 33, in verse 21, Amon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh his father had done, and Amon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made, and he served them. Moreover, he did not humble himself before the Lord as his father Manasseh had done, but Amon multiplied guilt. Finally, his servants conspired against him and put him to death in his own house. But the people of the land killed all the conspirators against King Amon, and the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. Now, the reason that I wanted to read through that is because even, you look at how Manasseh ends his life. Thank goodness for that. Thank, thank God that his grace can save even such a man as that. But look at, what, look at what path he had set, what example he had set for his own son. Because it's not like his son forgot everything. It's not like his son didn't know everything that Manasseh had done. And so we think about God's grace. Again, there will be consequences for the things that we do. And so one of the reasons I bring this up is just to say, we, can't, we don't have any time to lose. We don't want to spend as much time as possible. And then at the very end of our lives, or at, the, you know, at some specific point, that's when we're going to start doing what God says. Because the longer we go in sin, the longer that, the more powerful that example of sinfulness becomes. And so maybe that's one of the reasons that, that Manasseh's son, Amon, had gone even further down. Because he just remembered this. And so we need to be careful of the consequences that we are bringing on ourselves and on the people around us. But not only that, maybe it was because of the fact that they didn't go far enough with the high places. Because he had left a relic from his old, evil, sinful days as king. This left a foothold for temptation in the life of his own son. And, it, and this makes me ponder, what altars might we be erecting in our own lives? And not just for me, but what altars might, might we be erecting for our kids? It doesn't affect me. Hey, I can watch TV and be unaffected by it. I still think we need to talk about that claim, but let's say maybe you are unaffected by it. I can watch these commercials. I don't have to turn my head. It's fine. What about your son? And what about your daughter? Because maybe these, I don't know why people are so enamored with these stupid award shows, because they're not entertaining at all. But, you know, for whatever re reason people like to watch them, what, pe what kids see is the most lewd and licentious dancing. And what I mean by that is dirty. It's sinful. And, and young girls are seeing that's, that, that's what makes me you know, look good in the eyes of men. Is that what you want your daughters to think? Or with sons, this is what men truly look like. Men that are feminine, men that, that are, are weak, not in terms of just physicality, but I mean weak in terms of they're not acting the way God would say men act like. I mean, that's what they're learning. I can take it. What about your own kids? Or social media for that matter. Maybe I'm strong enough to be able to withstand the temptations. But are they equipped for that? And it's not just with our own kids. Think about it in terms of the next generation for the church, your, your much younger and future brothers and sisters in Christ. What altars am I setting up right now? Maybe it's uninvested attendance. Maybe it's just I'm coming and, and I'm not really doing anything, not being active, not participating, and what my brothers and sisters are saying is I can get away with that. Maybe it's not just that. 
Am I setting up an altar of silence and not speaking up when God's word is hurt or God's word is being silenced? And when the world around us tries to say, you need to shut your mouth, we, instead of even more boldly saying, I refuse, maybe we do kind of, you know what our brothers and sisters are seeing, that we can get away by giving ourselves to this altar. And there are all kinds of altars that we may be bringing up, but we need to understand that this is the impact. God's grace covers our sin. God's grace will save us from our sins, but we got to make sure that we act on that grace so that way we don't bring more consequences, not just on me, but on the people that I love most. Because no matter what Manasseh did at the end of his life, his son didn't follow in those footsteps. And so we need to be careful about the example that we're setting. We cannot undo all the damage that we have done through our sins. But we can certainly be saved from them. God's grace is, as we said a moment ago, always accessible. As long as you're still living and breathing. If you're here, God's grace is able to save you. And so if you're a Christian and you've gone astray like in the times of the judges. Maybe you've been living like Manasseh as, and, and God would look at you and say, you're supposed to be living like my people. You're supposed to be a good example, but you're living like the rest of the world. You can make your life right. Stop living like them and start only looking at this sole authority. And God's grace can save you and bring you back into relationship with him. If you're not a Christian, remember what Manasseh and Paul and the rest of God's people had to do when it comes to his grace. It's not just something where they make some verbal incantation. All of a sudden, everything's okay. They have got to be willing to comply to his conditions. And so are you willing to be faithful? And, are you will- and that means doing away with everything he says you can't be a part of anymore. Everything that the world has to offer. Making a confession publicly based on that belief. And being baptized into his death to rise in newness of life to be converted and transferred into his kingdom. You can have that salvation tonight. Utilize God's grace that's before you. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.